dismissed, right? The kids, kindergarten through seventh grade. Meet Renee, back door. Can I steal? Okay. Thanks. All right, well, good morning, guys. It's a joy and a privilege to be able to be here with you this morning. Um, my name is Doug. I'm the pastor here at Parkview East. And if you are new here, I want to welcome you guys. So glad that you have joined us this morning for worship. Um, we are, as a church, we've been walking through the book of Mark. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to take them out and open them to the Gospel of Mark. It's in the New Testament, kind of towards the end there. And um, we are in chapter 12. In chapter 12. So I'd invite you, Mark chapter 12. We're going to be specifically looking at this morning. I'm going to move this spaceship real quick over here, just in case it interferes with my mic. There's a lot of metal right there. Um, Mark 12, 13 through 17. I'm going to read and then I'll, I'll pray for us, okay? Mark 12, 13 through 17. If you don't have a Bible, um, Denny's got some. He can come around and deliver one. You just put your hand up and he'll, he'll put one in your lap. One in your hand there, okay. So Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you uh, for the opportunity now to just um, open your word. Lord, I thank you that you have um, given us your word, that you are a, not a God who hides his will from us, Lord, but you show us plainly through your word what it looks like, what it means to live a life of submission towards you. Lord, I pray that as we examine these words this morning, that um, your spirit, that he would fill this place. Lord, and that every word that is spoken would be one that is full of truth and full of grace. Father, I pray it would be your word that is spoken. Lord, we love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. I'm sure that many of you woke up this morning and as you prepared to make your way to church this morning, um, I'm sure many of you probably had the thought, boy, I, I hope, I really hope and pray that when I get to church, the pastor will stand up and give me a message on politics. I pray, Jesus, please let this be a political, pastoral Moment. I'm sure that's what was on your heart, that you would just envision politics and church coming together in this place this morning. I'm sure many of you were hoping for that. Um, I want to say that just a couple things before we dive into this text, okay? Just a couple things. Um, 
there are moments in Jesus's life, right? We're in the book of Mark and we are examining Jesus's life, his ministry, the words that he spoke. And, and the reality is there, there are things that Jesus said and there are things that Jesus did that disrupted the political atmosphere of his day. There are. And we're looking at one of those things now where Jesus spoke a word that challenged, maybe, the political climate or affirmed it. Now, my temptation this morning was to maybe think of everything I could possibly say about Jesus and government and, and give for you a grand sort of theology of how these two things work together. Uh, but as I reflected on this text and as I read it, what became very clear is that Jesus was met with the exact same temptation. He was met. He was confronted. He, he, the, the trap was baited for him to enter into exactly that conversation. What's awesome about Jesus' words and what's really freeing for me this morning is, is he didn't take the bait. He didn't take the bait, right? And so... You know, the truth is you could survey the political landscape today and it wouldn't take long before you would see that there's a lot of confusion and just, I don't know if it's more or less than what there has been in the past, uh, but it is not an easy terrain to navigate. What is the relationship? What's the appropriate relationship between the Christian and his or her government? Thank God that Jesus speaks to it here this morning. And, and elsewhere in the Bible, he gives us some directions so that where we might look at the landscape around us and think that it's simply hopeless, Jesus, with these words, provides us some hope. But it's not hope in the government. Ultimately, it's hope in Jesus. That's good news for us this morning. That's really good news. And depending on where you vote, right, depending on how you vote and what side of the aisle you Sit on it may be more hopeful this morning, more helpful for you. I don't know. And last term, maybe, who knows, okay? Let's not get into that. The big idea, the big idea for us this morning is, is really found in verse 17. And we'll kind of go through how Jesus gets there and, and then ask ourselves, what does it mean for us? But the big idea is simple. We are to pay our taxes to the government, but even more importantly, we as Christians, we are called to put our trust in Jesus. Give your taxes to Caesar, but your trust, your life, your allegiance, first and foremost, is to Jesus. It's good news. So this morning as we walk through this text, we'll see there's an unusual alliance first. And the next thing that we'll see is there is an unbelievable, Jesus gives an unbelievable answer and then finally, we'll explore a little bit what this ultimate allegiance looks like. The alliance, an answer, an allegiance, right? Put your trust in Jesus. That's the big idea of the text. Jesus is deserving of your trust. Jesus and Jesus alone. As Doug was up here talking about Faith Academy and... And the banquet that's coming up, I was sitting back there and I couldn't help but think of when it first started some five years ago and how it started. Maybe you don't know this story. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but just a few things would be helpful for you to know is we started with kindergarten and first grade in this building and we had to find students. It's hard to have a school if you do not have any students who will call it their school, 
okay? So we have to pitch this idea, right? There's this interesting balance. We didn't have any money. We didn't have any students simultaneously leading into the school year. It was a wonderful position for any school to be in. And we had to go around and sell what really was a vision, what was a dream, Okay, now one of the, I'll just be honest and play my cards up front that one of the hardest things for me, and, start, and this is not, not a joke, one of the most challenging things for me when we started the school was to um, consider my wardrobe, okay? Like, I didn't have any shirts with collars, all right? I mostly wore Chuck Taylors and white t-shirts. That was just the way I rocked, okay? And, and as we went around and began to sell this vision of the school, to people in the community, hey, would you send your son or your daughter to this school? Uh, we had to show them that it was a real deal, that we were people who were trustworthy, okay? You are going to send your child to this school. Like, I better be able to trust you with my son or with my daughter. You had better be trustworthy. This was a particular hard sell for me as I drove my 1984 Caprice Classic and I wore my Chuck Taylors and I would pull up like and park it on the block and have flyers in my hand and we would walk around and people would look at me side eye like, excuse me, what kind of a school is this, right? It, it took some time to show that we were trustworthy. So even as we consider our text, I share that story with you this morning, because even as we consider this text this morning, I think if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, and somebody asks you to put your trust in Jesus, you should be, you, you will be asking yourself the exact same question that those parents were asking of me as I invited them to participate in this dream. Can I trust you? Can I trust you, Jesus, with my life? Before I give my life over to you, Jesus, are you trustworthy? And the wonderful thing that we'll see this morning is that there is no one that is more trustworthy of your greatest, your ultimate allegiance than King Jesus himself. Jesus is trustworthy, and I hope you see that this morning. What we'll see here real quick is the un first, at the beginning of our text, we see that Jesus is confronted with an unusual alliance. Verse 13, if you recall, at the end of the previous day, this is Passion Week. This is leading up to the cross. This is Tuesday of that week. The previous day, Jesus, we learned last week, had entered the temple, stayed in the court of the Gentiles, saw what was happening, was completely horrified that these people had drifted so far away from God that the, the very house that was supposed to house the presence of the most holy God had turned into a place of and a means of exploiting the people where foreigners should be able to come and get an idea of who this God was, it was almost impossible to see because the temple had been perverted, all right? It had lost its purpose. Jesus sees it, and you have to remember the temple was really at the center of the history and the identity of the nation of Israel. And Jesus looks at it, and his response is that you have turned God's house, supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, into a den of robbers, so Jesus responds appropriately. He drives them out, flipping over tables and benches. 
And in this revolutionary act, we see two really important things. First is that we see the ultimate closing of the temple, the conclusion of the temple at the center of life for those who are spiritual. Jesus was removing the temple from the center of spiritual life, and instead he was placing himself. He was the new center. The next thing that we see that this is really important for us to stand, especially this morning's text, is that from this moment, there would be no turning back. Jesus knows that what he does in the temple is going to ultimately lead him to the cross. It's going to set into motion events that will mean his death. There is no turning back from this point. After he closes the temple, Jesus heads back out of town. He comes back in on Tuesday, and he spends his time back in the temple that he just cleansed. Goes back into the temple. And the events that we look at in chapter 12, all of this takes place in the temple. Given what Jesus had just done, you can only imagine how he was received. While in the temple, representatives from the religious and the political establishment would descend upon Jesus. The opposition was fierce as they zero in on Jesus in hopes of tripping him up. They ask him a series of questions, one of which we are looking at this morning. These questions do not represent their genuine search for knowledge and understanding. Not at all. These questions are attempts to bait a trap for Jesus. Leading up to this passage, we see that Jesus' authority is challenged. We also see one of the other parables that Jesus would teach, the parable of the tenants. And then we come across our passage this morning. And we learn that a delegation is sent towards Jesus. The Sanhedrin, the religious authority of the day, conspired to send a delegation to him. And this delegation, we are told, is made up of Pharisees and Herodians. It says there in verse 13. This delegation is quite the unusual alliance, to be sure. The Pharisees, they represented the religious nationalists who stood in strong opposition to Roman occupation while the Herodians were on the completely opposite side. They had sold themselves out to the Roman Empire and served as their stooges. Pharisees resisted all things Roman, while Herodians accommodated all things Roman. What cemented these two groups, these two polarizing groups together, was their mutual hatred for Jesus. This was, by all accounts, a truly unusual alliance. The Pharisees despised Jesus because they challenged, he challenged their nationalistic agenda in every way possible, disrupted the status quo. While the Herodians saw Jesus as a threat who refused to subscribe to their political ideology. And as his influence grew, so did their hostility towards him. Where the Jesus problem was concerned for both groups, different sides of the aisle, where the Jesus problem was concerned, there was one solution. Destroy that man. That's what brought them together. So they approach him with a trap. They ask a simple question about taxes. We see it there in verse 14. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. 
For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? They ask him a simple question about taxes. Now, this is calculated. This is a political trap. Cleverly devised, the question about taxes was a legitimate question, to be sure. But it was also a potentially deadly question. Why? Why so deadly? Why so dangerous? Well, a little history is helpful for us. There are many taxes in the Roman Empire, but this particular tax was unique. It was unlike the other taxes. This tax specifically was a poll tax. It was a head tax. It was, in effect, the price one paid for living under Roman rule with Roman, within Roman jurisdiction. It was collected once a year to the tune of one day's wages. The Jews could not have despised this tax any more than they despised it. It, was a, it wasn't necessarily a lot of money, right? They weren't upset about the tax because they had to give a ton of money towards it. Rather, it was what the tax represented, the tax was a constant reminder that the Jew was subject to a foreign and pagan authority. The Jew had to pay the Roman Empire for the privilege of living in their own land. The land that was originally promised and eventually given to them by God himself. By paying this tax, they were not just submitting to a foreign authority. They were actively participating in this same authority. This tax could not be more offensive to the first century Jew. In fact, this tax was initially instituted. When it was instituted, it resulted in an immediate movement of resistance led by one Judas of Galilee. Judas of Galilee led a group of zealots who were a theocratic nationalists who refused to pay the tax. Gamaliel tells us in Acts 5 that the result of this resistance movement, we aren't paying the tax, Judas of Galilee said. The result of that movement was that Judas was quickly crushed by the Roman Empire and his followers were scattered. The resistance movement didn't last very long. They approached Jesus this day hoping for the exact same result. See, if Jesus commanded the Jews not to pay to Caesar his taxes, then he would be aligning himself with the zealots. And this would result in the in, in immediate confrontation with Rome. He too, like Judas the Galilean, would be destroyed. That's what they hoped for. Meanwhile, if he says, pay the tax, he will alienate his followers who despise Roman occupation. He will lose the people. That's the position that he is in with this question. Now, the nature of this question, the intent, I think, for us, it should sound familiar to you. The, the intent, what they are bringing to him, especially for us today. For, for the question at the very core is getting at the relationship of the Christian and government. What is the responsibility? What's the appropriate relationship for the Christian and the government? Is it possible... For the Christian to remain faithful to God while subject to a civil authority. 
Many who stand against Jesus, oftentimes today, even in our culture, will approach, approach Christians with the exact same intent. So the way Jesus responds by bringing up politics, trying to get Christians to land on one side or the other, making a decision, sinking stakes into the ground in one place or another, a lot of times it's a cleverly devised way of destroying us. So we have a lot to learn from Jesus and how he responds. A lot. Jesus gives them this unusual alliance, the most unbelievable answer, and nobody saw it coming. Unbelievable answer. His answer is so helpful for us today. In fact, his answer is so remarkable that we are told at the end of his interaction with this delegation that his opponents, the opposition, is completely disarmed and they walk away marveling at what Jesus said. You see, what they are after is a politically simplistic response. Ultimately, what they want Jesus to do is simply give them one word. They're just looking for one word. Yes or no. That's all they want. The last thing they want is to enter and invite Jesus into a conversation, into dialogue, right? They want a politically simplistic response. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They even rephrase the question to get him to give them just one word. Should we pay or should we not, right? They want one word. Yes, pay them. No, don't pay them. They do not want what Jesus gives them. They don't want it. They do not want a conversation. They want a position. That's what they're after, a position. Yes or no, Jesus? Should we pay or should we not? Who are you with, Jesus? Are you with Caesar or are you with God? Where is your ultimate allegiance? Ultimately, who are you aligned with, Jesus? Caesar, Rome, or God? Jesus' refusal to give a politically simplistic response serves as a wonderful reminder that we must not do what Jesus himself wouldn't do. They are attempting to force Jesus into their, their particular political paradigm. That's what they want to do. They have a particular political structure and they're trying to force Jesus into it. Are you on this side, Jesus, or are you on that side? Politically, Jesus, where do you stand? But the thing about Jesus is that he doesn't fit their particular political paradigm. He doesn't fit in it. No, Jesus transcends it, completely transcends it. He doesn't align himself with one side or the other. We, too, must avoid this temptation. Where our democracy is concerned, Jesus does not exclusively stand with one side or the other. Okay? I, I think it's really important for us as we try to navigate our political culture, our democracy, I think it's important that we remember that. There are faithful brothers and sisters. This might be hard. I'm going to say it. There are faithful brothers and sisters on both sides of the aisle. There are. 
okay? And I don't know, and neither do I care when you go into the voting booth what box you check, all right? But what we have to guard against as a people, remember our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus, okay? What we have to guard against is a narrative that I think is put on us, not by even ourselves, right? That if you ascribe to faithful biblical Christianity, then you must be here or there. Jesus ain't going, all right? Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait, okay? We must not force him into our paradigm or into our box. He wouldn't do it then, and he won't do it now. Jesus asks, it's interesting because in verse 15, you know, he, he gets asked a question and, and he answers, a, he gets asked a question and he asks a question back to them. They set a trap for him and what does Jesus do? He sets a trap for them. I love how Jesus does it. It's really quite amazing. Jesus asks someone in verse 15, we see it, to come to, for a denarius. Someone comes forth and hands the coin to Jesus. And it's interesting to note that Jesus himself has to ask for the coin. He doesn't even have one himself. And on one side of the denarius was a picture of Caesar with the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the back side of the coin, it said, High Priest. Jesus responds to the question. He asks for a question. He sets a trap. Jesus held up the coin before the crowd that had gathered around in the temple and asked them a question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? He demanded. The response was simple. That is Caesar's. And what follows is one of the most significant pronouncements that Jesus would utter during his life and ministry. Odds are this is one of the pronouncements that for those who are unfamiliar with the church, a lot of them will know this. Very famous. One of the most important pronouncements concerning how Christians are to live in relation to their government. He says, we'll look at the first part. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. See, the coin itself was minted out of the emperor's own wealth. It had his image stamped on it and thus was considered to be his personal property. Even while in circulation, all the coins in the Roman Empire that had his name and his face stamped on it, they were his. Paying taxes was simply giving back to Caesar that which was his own property. With this statement, Jesus commands and commends the paying of taxes, which by implication would commend his followers to appropriate submission to Rome. Can you imagine the shock, especially of his followers? Their anticipation probably was far different. They were probably expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow the foreign and pagan kingdom and set up a, a new theocratic kingdom there. That they could not have been more surprised with what Jesus was suggesting. Jesus here affirms the legitimacy of the state. He's not after establishing his own separate political state that would stand in opposition to Rome. No, his purpose for coming is far greater than even the Roman Empire. His followers, Jesus said, should pay taxes. Here, Jesus is making a simple point that is just as relevant for us today. 
Jesus calls his followers to be good citizens. To be good citizens. This is remarkable. Because he's talking about the imperialistic, corrupt Roman Empire. Jesus does not support or affirm the position of the zealots who call for Jews to refuse paying taxes to Rome as a means of resistance. Later, Paul would affirm this call to good citizenship in Romans 13, 1 through 2. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. The fact that Paul says this is even more surprising. Because at that time, when he wrote these words, Rome was under the power of the emperor Nero. Who, who was famous for his ruthless, brutal persecution of the church. And here Paul is saying, submit to the governing authorities. Be a good Christian. See, the concept of human government is itself deeply biblical. All the way back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 where God commanded Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Earthly authority by nature reflects God's authority. Government may not be specifically Christian, but still good. It's a reminder for us that it's one of the things that I've always interests me when I, enter, when I meet with an international student. When I, when I have a, a connection with somebody who's not from here. I can remember traveling to Ukraine and spending the summer there. And I would meet with people. And, and the, the religious culture and climate was very different there at that time. But they would listen to me here and they would ask me, like, what is it like to live in a Christian nation? That's oftentimes the perception of of our country is that it is a Christian nation it's not it's not a Christian nation right if you live here you should know that it's not okay American doesn't equal Christian okay it doesn't but there are principles there I mean I think as as a whole our democracy is set up in such a way as to promote good and to restrain evil government serves a purpose it is good, Jesus says. Paul says it is good. Recognize, submit to the authority. Their pronouncement was not simply good and relevant just for them. It's equally as good and relevant for us. We too are called to be good citizens. Jesus' words here are an invitation for the Christian participation in government affairs, not the withdrawal from them. All right? We are called to be good citizens of the state by submitting to its authority and a legitimate, as a legitimate government. Why is it legitimate? Because it has been put in place and itself is subject to, whether it recognizes it or not, is subject to a higher authority. The purpose of restraining evil, promoting good. Doesn't mean that we are to agree with every policy, with every tax increase or decrease that is passed into law. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them all. In fact, we should enter into the sphere where those things are even made, where they're formed, where those decisions, those laws are put into place. We should have a vested interest because this is sort of common land for us. We live under this common grace. 
does not mean we are to submit to the laws and policies of our government where they do not stand in direct opposition of God's law. There are plenty of places in Scripture where you see God's law bucking against government and, and law, human law, and you see that, that where government overreaches and tries to take what is rightfully God, that you see examples in the Bible where men say no. You see examples in Daniel and in Acts where they stand up because their ultimate allegiance is to God far above government. And it's something that's really helpful and important for us to keep in mind, and it's the point that Jesus' statement ends with. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God. The last part, as, as astounded and captivated as his audience was by Jesus' claim to pay taxes to Caesar, what would follow next was even more shocking. It was nothing, what he said, compared to what would follow. Give God the things that are God's. This delegation approached Jesus with a question that had some big-time implications for the day, but Jesus took their issue and with it gave them a lesson on God. Suddenly, the entire conversation shifts. The entire conversation changes. If you've been around my son, Zachary, at all, you know that he loves fishing. And every conversation, I don't know how he does it, all right? But every conversation, it may start with baseball. It may start with Jesus. It might start with homework, okay? And it ends up with fishing. Like, he can't stop talking about fishing. He finds a way. I mean, just sometimes you'll see it. You'll be having a conversation with somebody, and all of a sudden, he wasn't even a part of the conversation. Like, five minutes later, you're talking about fishing because he overheard something popped up in there and redirected the whole conversation. I've, I'm convinced he will be a fantastic evangelist, right? <laughs> You take anything and just turn it on a pivot, right? And that's what Jesus does here. Jesus is asked a question about Caesar, about Rome, about taxes, about taxes. And he ends with a pronouncement about God. It's amazing. It's amazing. The whole conversation totally changes the topic. They didn't ask him anything about God. And he gives them a lesson on God. Render to God the things that belong to him. This is the most important part of the entire passage. With this statement, Jesus puts the Roman government in their proper place. More specifically, Jesus puts Caesar in his place. Yeah, sure, those coins, those little bitty coins have his name, his face on them. Sure, they're his. Go ahead, give, the, give Caesar what belongs to him. Sure, Caesar has a legitimate claim, but it's also a limited claim. This is exactly what should happen when Caesar overreaches you see times in the Bible where, where people stand up, like I said, against the law, and it's exactly what should happen when Caesar overreaches and, and, and starts to claim what belongs to God and God alone as his. That's when we stand up and say, we have to do something about this. Jesus says, bring me a coin. Shows him Caesar. Yeah, yeah. But you know what else Jesus does? Jesus says, there's a coin, Caesar, have your coin. There's another coin. Jesus 
sees another coin. And this coin is completely different. On this coin is stamped a much different, a very different image. The coin that Jesus holds up is you. And it's me. Stamped in the image and likeness of God. There is another coin. Give Caesar his coin. But there's another coin with a different image. And it belongs to God. Give Caesar his coin. Give yourself to God. An amazing claim. It was a serious offense to withhold from the government the taxes that rightfully belong to Caesar. There was penalty to be sure. How much more serious is it to withhold from God that which is rightfully his? Please don't turn this one down. There is a coin that belongs to God. The image that is in you, the Bible tells us, is God's image, not the state's image, not Caesar's image. You, me, we owe our ultimate allegiance to God. Give yourself to God. Rendering your taxes to Caesar is absolutely trivial compared to rendering your life to God himself. And they knew it. Again, we're told that after Jesus would utter these words, that the delegation, the people who heard them, what did they do? They marveled at his teaching. They marveled at it. On the surface, you might think, well, that's pretty good. Jesus turned that thing around, right? But to me, of all of this, that is the most, those are the most sad words in the entire passage. They marveled at his teaching. They marveled where he's, why is it sad? Because they shouldn't have just marveled. Their response should have been to humbly submit and to ascribe worship to the man standing in front of them. But they marveled. Folks, there's a big difference. There's a big difference by ascribing worship, humbly submitting, saying Jesus alone deserves your ultimate allegiance, and marveling at Jesus I don't know if you knew it, but there's a big difference. All right, you can, you can come to church on a Sunday, this church or any church, and you can walk away thinking, wow, that was a fantastic message. Wow, Fern was really on fire today. Excellent job. Great worship. Awesome, awesome, awesome. You can walk out of here and you can marvel at what happens on a Sunday. You can pick up your Bible and you can marvel. And that's good. It's good to marvel. At what Jesus says. It's, it's a great thing to marvel at what Jesus has done. It truly is amazing. But if it stops there, it's very unfortunate, right? It would be a tremendous disservice to yourself to leave, to, to read truth, to read the Bible, to interact with Jesus in this book, and to simply marvel. What great, wonderful words without actively evaluating your life and saying, what is it 
in my life that I'm holding on to that is rightfully God's? What part of my life has yet to be surrendered to Jesus, has yet to be given to Jesus? See, ultimately, Jesus isn't just after our marveling. No, he wants your submission. That's what he's after. He wants you to surrender whatever it is, be it family, be it finances, be it time, be in relationships, your career, your future, your retirement. Whatever it is that God has entrusted to you, he wants you to surrender it to him. Why should you surrender it to him? Because he and he alone is trustworthy of it. He and he alone is worthy of it. Trustworthy. How do we know that Jesus is not going to take what we give him and not have our interest in mind? And not have our hearts in mind and care for us. How can we trust him with the things that are most deeply involved in who we are? The things that are closest to our heart. Why should we trust him? Well, just in a few days, Jesus would go to Calvary and he would hang up on that cross. Because he wants every one of you. He wants every part. Of you, And it would take him to the extent that he would give his life because he loves you so much. There's nobody who's more worthy of your life than this man. What part of your life have you not given to Jesus? What part of your life are you still holding on to? There, there is nobody else, nobody else who's worthy of it. Jesus and Jesus alone wants it. He wants it. What, what belongs to God? Everything, in case you didn't know. Absolutely everything. And he wants, he wants it all. Every part of you, he wants. And this should be wonderful news for, for all of us this morning. He, he made us in his image, right? He, he loves you. He made you the way that you are. And life isn't going to be easy, neither does anyone promise that it will be. It will be difficult. He, he wants your pain. He wants your depression. Those things are real things. And, and if you're going to give them to anybody, he and he alone is worthy of them. He died on the cross because he wants them. And he wants you. And the worst thing could be is to hold back from giving Jesus what is rightfully his, right? Because the Bible says there's penalty for that, right? The punishment for our sins, we pay it. The penalty is our life. There's an invitation here this morning to give to Jesus what is rightfully his. It's a wonderful invitation. It's a wonderful invitation. So, so just even as you leave here, I would caution you to just marvel at the wisdom of Jesus, don't stop there. Don't just marvel at what Jesus said here. It, it is miraculous. It is wonderful. It's really, really amazing what he does. But don't just marvel. Consider your heart. Consider your life. Even just this week, it would be fantastic if you could identify just even one thing 
This would be a great thing to do in a community context of community, maybe a friendship or a marriage. What is something that you, that we are holding on to, that we just don't know if we can trust Jesus with? Just one thing. Just think of just one thing this week. What is it that you have that rightfully belongs to him? You're going to give it to him. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you um, just for this wonderful reminder. Lord, that you made us the way that we are, and you want us the way that we are, Father. Lord, I pray that you would help just your people this morning as we think of these words, these wonderful words. Lord, I pray that we would be good citizens of this government, of this nation. Lord, I pray that we would be good citizens, Father. But more than that, Lord, I pray that we would be people who put our trust, who put our very lives in your hands, Father. I pray you would show us areas of our life that we are holding on to, Lord, that you want. Give us the courage, give us the strength to give you what is rightfully yours. And we thank you as we just even think of the extent to what you went through so that you could have it. So you could bring us back to God, Lord. We thank you for that. We ask these things in your name. Amen.